0: executive orders for a long time um, have been just treated as, as okay, even if they look like legislation. Not all of these end up in litigation. And so I think, you know, since George Washington, historically executive orders are something we've tolerated, even though they aren't expressly authorized in the Constitution anywhere.
1: The real legal problem is the gradual uh, and sometimes precipitous accretion of powers by presidents that have taken, and that's taken place not just under President Trump and not even necessarily worse under President Trump. Uh, President Obama uh, was uh, a master at going around Congress through executive orders, and that's the long-term problem. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to
2: Lawyer with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled The Sled and How to Get Sued. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, Lex Reception and Blue Jay Legal. Lex Reception is a close-knit team of virtual receptionists dedicated to professionalism, warmth, and a 24-7 availability for law firms and attorneys. Blue Jay Legal's AI-powered foresight platforms accurately predict court outcomes and accelerate case research by using factors instead of keywords. You can learn more at BlueJLegal.com. That's Blue, the letter J, legal.com bluejaylegal.com. Since 2017, President Trump has issued 181 executive orders. Recently, the president has come under fire for issuing executive orders to provide economic relief to Americans during the pandemic, bypassing Congress and its traditional power of the purse or power of appropriation. And according to the LA Times, after negotiations with Congress fell through, President Trump signed four executive orders that included extending enhanced federal unemployment benefits, deferring some employees' payroll taxes, continuing a temporary ban on evictions, and reducing the burden of student loans. So what are the details in these executive orders? Are they constitutional? And will the president face legal challenges? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss the use of these executive orders by the president and validity of those orders. To do that, we've got a great show for you today. Our first guest is Professor Kimberly Whaley from the University of Baltimore School of Law, where she teaches and writes in the areas of administrative law, federal courts, and civil procedure. Professor Whaley is an on-air and off-air legal expert, analyst, and commentator for CBS News. She's also a contributor for BBC World News and BBC World News America. She's an op-ed contributor for The Bulwark and an opinion contributor for The Hill. She's also the author of How to Read the Constitution and Why and What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, both published by HarperCollins Publishers. Welcome to the show, Professor Whaley.
0: Thank you for having
2: me. And our next guest is Professor Michael W. McConnell. He is the director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He has two upcoming books, The President Who Would Not Be King, Executive Power Under the Constitution, which will be published by Princeton University Press in late 2020, this year, and Establishment of Religion, Neutrality, Accommodation, and Separation, that will also be published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Welcome to the show, Professor McConnell. Thank you. Well, Professor McConnell, let's turn to you first, and let's talk about the history, origin, and and what are executive orders.
1: Well, the term executive order doesn't appear in the Constitution and is, in a sense, meaningless. That is, uh, presidents have certain powers. Most of them are delegated by statute, passed by Congress, and then there are some powers that the president has simply under the Constitution. And he can exercise those powers however he wishes. He can do it by picking up the phone and giving a directive. He can issue a memorandum. But the most formal way in which presidents do this is in writing, published in the Federal Register, and these are called executive orders. But again, calling it an executive order does not give it any additional power. The only question is whether the president is exercising a power that he gets from somewhere else.
2: Well, Professor Whaley, where do these powers come from? I mean, since it's not in the Constitution, what's the basis for issuing an executive order?
0: Well, to the extent to which the president is implementing executive power, so, for example, making decisions regarding the, an administrative process within the executive branch, that's like issuing a memorandum saying this is how the executive branch is going to do X, Y, Z. And actually, some of these are called memoranda, not necessarily executive orders. But sometimes by executive order, the president does something that looks more like legislation, that is creating a new standard to govern private conduct in some way. And that that goes under the Constitution, that power goes to Congress. So then the question becomes, is the president making laws pursuant to authority given to the executive branch by the United States Congress? Uh, I mean, every executive branch agency that issues regulations, for example, those regulations are authorized by an act of Congress. What I tell my students is, Congress hands off the legislative baton to the executive branch and and the agencies basically fill in the blanks of congressional legislation. Um, Now, sort of question number three would be, if the president is doing something that's not executing laws within the boundaries of the Article II and is doing something more like legislating and Congress hasn't given the president that express power, that's where we get into constitutionally murky terrain. But, you know, executive orders for a long time um, have been just treated as as okay, even if they look like legislation, not all of these end up in litigation. And so I think, you know, since, since George Washington, historically, executive orders are something we've tolerated, even though they aren't expressly authorized in the Constitution anywhere.
2: Professor McConnell, has the court faced the question of whether, or the judicial branch rather, face the question of whether these executive orders have validity based beyond just simply directing the executive branch how to behave?
1: Yes, one of the most famous separation of powers cases in American history involved an executive order issued by President Harry Truman during the Korean War directing the Secretary of Commerce to take control over the steel industry. This was in order to stop an impending steel strike and thus prevent damage to the war effort. And the Supreme Court held that that President Truman could not do that, that that executive order was unconstitutional in the sense that he lacked authority. Uh, The Constitution itself does not give the president the power to seize private property, and no statute passed by Congress did so.
2: Professor Whaley, I remember back, I'm going to give my age away here, back in the 70s when President Nixon issued orders freezing prices to stop inflation. Were those valid?
0: I'm going to actually let Professor McConnell answer that if he has that at his Uh, fingertips. I don't remember those cases. Actually,
1: uh, autobiographical note, when I was a law clerk uh, just out of law school, that very case was decided by my judge the day, basically the day I, I reported for work. I think that was a very close case, but the uh, Court of Appeals did hold that uh, president. It was a a version of this by President Carter instead, but essentially the same idea. They upheld it, but it was really kind of a stretch because all Congress had said was that the uh, executive branch has the power to issue procurement orders that promote efficiency in the government service. And so wage price controls were imposed under the, I think, rather dubious theory that the government procurement would be more efficient if we had such a scheme.
2: Right, it makes sense. Well, Professor Whaley, I'm curious what you think about the president making the statement that he has executive powers that people don't even know about, and that the Supreme Court has given him powers that are secret. Apparently, there's a, a gentleman by the name of John Yu who's got some influence, the torture memo writer, who has indicated that the president just ought to issue orders and let it be challenged in the courts for a year or two or three, and, and people have to put up with it. How can that even be possible?
0: there's two questions here one is what is the source of the power and that's a great question for lawyers and judges the other question is if the president exercises power that he does not possess or he infringes on another branch's pow- power or he acts in some way ultra vires uh, what are the consequences and i think what we've seen in the last few years with the trump administration in particular isn't so much Is something legal or not, but when the president exercises powers in a way that seems inconsistent with his authority, is there a consequence? Now, you know, we saw with the Mueller investigation, the critical issue was we heard all along, oh, well, the president can't be prosecuted. Well, that's not in a law anywhere. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in a statute. It's not in a regulation. It's not in a su- Supreme Court decision. But if if there are lo- legal violations and there's no consequence, then the power of the president gets enhanced. The, the belt and suspenders of the office get enhanced. And as you mentioned, Professor Yu, I, I believe is at Berkeley. I've debated him on podcasts before. I think, you know, back during the Bush administration, Bush too— His position was that in time of war, and in that moment, the idea was that there was a war on terror, on terrorism, the president does have some measure of inherent powers uh, that somehow supersede the express powers articulated in the Constitution. I think under under Donald Trump, that notion of, okay, extraordinary powers for purposes of wartime have just been moved beyond any meaningful boundary. And I say that because the, the United States Congress hasn't exercised its oversight authority through impeachment by basically enforcing subpoenas for documents so that it can undergo uh, oversight it's congress's power is it's up to congress to to say emoluments are okay they haven't taken ac- action on that so at the end of the day whether or not there are inherent powers expressly in the constitution it kind of comes down to what happens in the breach and right now it's been nothing nothing meaningful so That's very troubling. As far as these memos, I've heard about these memos, and a lot of people are worried about them. There was a major, one of the major networks did a, I think Ted Koppel did a segment on it on Sunday, this past Sunday. But again, whether those memos are legal or not, even if the president's lawyers say they're legal, is less of a concern in this moment than if the president uses them and there isn't any consequence for potential illegality. And that's what really concerns me. And I think it's something a lot of Americans just don't understand. They think this constitution is self-executing, that it's a bulwark, that it's, you know, it's this big dam that's going to hold back any, any tsunami of water that could eventually undermine democracy itself. And unfortunately, I think we are. We're on that precipice where we've seen serious cracks in the foundations of our separation of powers.
2: Professor McConnell, does President Trump have the power to declare a national emergency? And if he does have that power, which I'm assuming he does, what is the limit on that power? Can he impose martial law? Can he suspend elections? Can he suspend the constitution? There's been a lot of noise about that. And is there any validity to any of that?
1: The president does have statutory authority to impose an emergency under the Emergencies Act, but that's not unlimited power. The Emergencies Act is keyed to, I believe it's 186 specific statutory authorities, many of them quite broad, but not as broad as... as people fear or that you may be suggesting they they don't amount to martial law. They do not give the president the power to delay elections. They do give the president the power to reprogram funds from one use to another. And, you know, a number of other very, very important powers, foreign trade authority. There, there are a lot of important powers uh, there, but uh, they are certainly not unlimited. And I would just say that, you know, part of the problem here is that President Trump I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful, but he runs his mouth. He says things that he thinks are going to appeal and then doesn't necessarily do anything about them. So he often makes grandiloquent pronouncements about what he's going to do. But what he actually does is considerably more modest than that. It's by no means clear that if you look at the actual executive orders that Trump has issued, that they are any more unilateralist or aggressive than the ones that President Obama uh, did, or even than the President Bush before, before that. This is not a Trump problem. This is a longstanding problem of presidential accretion of power, a great deal of it driven by the fact that Congress delegates enormous discretion to the executive branch, and that seems to be not limited by the Constitution, or at least by judicial review.
2: I'd love to get into these particular executive orders that we've got on the slate for today, but before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsors. We'll be right back. 80% of callers who reach voicemail hang up. Hiring an answering service means that you never miss a lead. Lex Reception can take your calls live, handle legal intake and schedule appointments in a professional manner for less than the cost of hiring an in-house employee. There are no contracts and the service is quick and easy to set up. For 50% off your first month's service visit lexreception.com forward slash lawyer to lawyer predict legal outcomes with blue jay legal's foresight platforms using ai to analyze thousands of cases and administrative rulings blue jay legal can predict with 90 percent accuracy on average how a judge would likely rule in your case plus you can research by factors and outcomes to find the relevant cases in seconds Stay ahead of the curve and learn more at BlueJLegal.com. That's Blue, the letter J, legal.com. BlueJLegal.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. And with us today is Professor Kimberly Whaley from the University of Baltimore School of Law and Professor Michael W. McConnell, Director of Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School. And right before the break, we were about ready to get into the particulars of the four executive orders that were introduced recently. So, Professor McConnell, let's turn back to you and talk about whether or not President Trump has the power to extend federal unemployment supplement (laughs) at $400 a week and make the states pay $100 of it.
1: Well, no, he doesn't. He does have the power to declare an emergency and to reprogram funds. And that might, we haven't seen where that might come from. There's been no budget Estimate or no no specifics on this. It's possible that he might find some unspent funds, for example, from the Cares Act uh, that he could uh, use for this purpose. But it would it would require a complete creation of a new unemployment compensation system because he couldn't do it through the current one. That's limited to statutory benefits. And under the emergency authority here, states have to pick up 25% of the tab, and he has no authority to require them to do that. So a number of states have already said that they're not going to uh, go along with this, and there's nothing he can do about that.
2: Will this order even hold water then? I mean, since there appear to be so many parts of it that don't work.
1: I'm very skeptical that anyone will get any money under this order.
2: Well, Professor Whaley, let's talk about Social Security, the payroll tax holiday through the end of the year for Americans earning less than $100,000. Is this a backdoor attempt to gut Social Security?
0: Well, that's another question as far as what the the idea behind it. I think the immediate effects is supposed to be to make have more money in people's bank accounts. I mean, the problem uh, sort of from a political and pragmatic standpoint with all of these executive orders is none of them are actually going to make an impact immediately. And uh, as Professor McConnell indicated, I think a lot of uh, what's happening in the executive branches really falls at the feet of Congress. And in this moment, the fact that the HEROES Act has been languishing, uh, and that would actually put dollars into people's pockets. I mean, what you mentioned, is, you know, holding off on the payroll tax, a payroll tax holiday, that doesn't mean that it wouldn't ultimately have to be paid. It just postpones the timing of it. And then, of course, those are monies that go, as you mentioned, into Social Security. And so it's it's hard to see how either starving it or holding off and having to pay it later is really helpful. I think, you know, this was probably more of a political maneuver for the president in light of what's happening with the pandemic and the economy rather than uh, an actual policy measure that is going to make an impact and, and address what what really should be done through the United States Congress.
2: Well, Professor McConnell, we have a extended student loan relief through the end of the year. That one looks like it might squeak through.
1: So the Department of Education has statutory authority to defer a payment of principal and interest on student loans in uh, this circumstances of uh, the statutory term is economic hardship. And President Trump has directed by memorandum, I forget now whether this is an executive order or a memorandum, it doesn't really matter, directed the secretary to interpret economic hardship to include the entire you know, coronavirus crisis, which is perhaps not unreasonable, That's really not presidential, an exercise of presidential power in the classic sense. This is statutory power vested in the Department of Education, and President Trump is simply instructing her to do that. I think, you know, politically, the purpose of that is so that he can take the credit. And Trump is no different from any other president in this respect. One of the principal uses of executive orders is, in fact, for the president to take credit for something that is actually going to be done by somebody else uh, in the bureaucracy.
2: Well, that, I guess, puts a good segue into the last executive order on the slate, the call for the federal agency leaders to try and find funds to help curb evictions. A lot of noise was made that it was going to stop evictions. Professor Whaley, is that going to happen?
0: No, this this executive order does not do that. It basically sends the agency personnel, the secretary and others into existing law to, to try to find ways of helping people against evictions, protect against evictions, find pots of money that might help them. So so all this really is, is a directive to the, you know, his staff to sort of think about the problem more and. Um, Again, I think it's a political maneuver, and I don't disagree. This is not. This is something that other presidents have done. The problem that I see is that you know we have 170,000 deaths and millions and millions of people evicted, and one in three children of color who are hungry right now. I mean, there's a lot of people that are really suffering, and so kind of um, this kind of window dressing, unfortunately, gets perceived through the press and you know on social media, etc., as something that's really meaningful, and it's not. At least in this moment, it's not. This is again something that requires some some kind of legislative action
2: well one of the other orders that apparently has been very meaningful or at least within the department itself or the postal service we've seen uh, mailboxes locked disappearing stories about mail sorting machines going away Professor McConnell what power does the president have to affect the postal service and what's the range of his powers there I mean there I've seen citations to you know people that interfere with the delivery of the mail or or potentially committing a crime.
1: So this is a a very puzzling thing. I've been reading about this just in the last couple of days, but I'm no expert on this. I don't really know what's going on. But apparently, because of the decline in mail over the last number of years, there's been a long-term, we're in the midst of a long-term reduction in uh, numbers of mailboxes and and so forth. So a a lot of the stuff has been going on for quite some time and really has nothing to do with the election. And now the postmaster general just announced that he's going to put a hold on any of these cost-saving measures until after the election, just to make sure that people don't get scared. Now, the most puzzling thing about this is why the president chose to make statements, making it sound as if this was more nefarious than it apparently was, that why he wanted to connect these actions, which which are, as I say, or at least as I read, and I'm, again, I don't know this firsthand, but as I read long-term uh, cost-saving uh, measures, why he wanted to, in a sense, take credit for this and, and, and f- as part of his uh, campaign against mail-in ballots is, uh, is a bit of a mystery. It reminds me of Saddam Hussein claiming to have WMDs when he didn't. Why, why does anybody want to claim something which is discreditable when it apparently, apparently there isn't any there there?
2: Right. Professor Whaley, any thoughts about the Postal Service issues?
0: Yeah, I mean, I see it a a bit differently in that I think there is there there because it wasn't just sort of taking sorting machines out of postal facilities and removing mailboxes, which at least anecdotally, people within the Postal Service for decades have said they've never seen anything like that. It's also a major reorganization of the top tier people at the post office. 23 important senior positions were moved around, Um, postal service workers, you know, they're Their hours were shortened. There was overtime was banned, and this is again something that has not been. It's anticipated. It's it's been happening for many years under many presidents. In part because the Postal Service is a creature of Congress. It's not a private entity that is able to compete. And this president, President Trump, has said months ago. I mean, I did a piece for The Hill on this back in April, anticipating this Postal Service crisis because he has said, you know, he didn't want to fund it. He wanted it to be more competitive, but they have statutory obligations of pre-funding, not just pension, but medical benefits for all of its employees that make it impossible. And of course, Mr. DeJoy was a major fundraiser for the president and also some people believe is ethically conflicted. And this is all coming in the midst, again, of a pandemic where we're seeing states have to massively, massively move towards mail-in voting. So even if there's not a nefarious, you know, subjective intent, good policy would be to enhance the Postal Service in light of the pandemic and the critical needs of Americans to be able to vote without putting their lives at risk. And again, the HEROES Act has money for the Postal Service that has just been sitting in the The president vowed to veto that back in in the spring. I think recently he's indicated that if there was a carve out for the Postal Service, I think with all of this political pressure, um, he would maybe sign just that part when there's still problems with um, from the Republican side of the aisle with respect to other parts of the HEROES Act. But I think what's happening in the Postal Service, given that it's in the Constitution itself, the statute makes it very clear that these kinds of things have to go through a commission for the changes or a number of lawsuits pending right now from states that challenge these actions as not having gone through the administrative process that's necessary, including a notice and comment period, I think the implications again for the election which is at the core of American democracy are quite serious.
2: Well Professor McConnell there's been a lot of concern and attacks on these executive orders are there any administrative procedure act requirements to put these things into effect is there opportunity notice to be uh, for hearing or are these just something that president Trump or any president for that matter just simply gets to issue on his own without consulting anybody?
1: I'm glad you asked that because that's actually one of the more important legal uh, details here. Presidential announcements, whether they are styled executive orders, proclamations is actually an older term that statutes frequently use, or memoranda, do not have to go through the Administrative Procedure Act. That's because the Administrative Procedure Act only applies to, quote, agencies, and the president is not an agency. And that has enormous practical implications. But we shouldn't exaggerate what those are because a lot of executive orders, including a lot of, of Mr. Trump's, consist of directing the agencies to take action. And when they take action, they have to go through whatever the Administrative Procedure Act requires, which in, includes in most circumstances, notice and comment rulemaking. So when Congress has vested authority in the agencies, including the cabinet departments, then it goes through these uh, administrative safeguards. But when power is exercised by the president himself, they do not.
2: Well, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program. So at this point, I'd like to take the opportunity to invite our guests to share their final thoughts. And Professor Whaley, let's throw it over to you first.
0: Well, I think this is a great conversation. It's a bit technical, And I think what's important for people to understand is when a question arises as to whether something's legal or not, the first step is to ask where the source of the power is between one of the three branches of government and then ask if that power is abused, whether the other two branches are actually taking action to hold branch three accountable. And this gets quite murky, but when when we just apply our common sense to it, I mean, what I explain to to my students is, you know, imagine there's a law that says you have to drive 35 miles an hour, but no one ever gets ticketed. So if you go 50, the law itself is not self-executing. It doesn't matter what the law says. But if there's a speed camera behind the bush, people will slow down. So the question of executive orders isn't entirely just what does the Constitution allow, um, but for Trump and his predecessors and future presidents, if that... power is abused, what are the consequences? Because without consequences, then, that is a new tool in the presidential toolbox. Um, And as Professor McConnell indicated, that has just gotten larger and larger uh, over the past century. Great.
2: Thank you, Professor Whaley. And Professor McConnell, your final thoughts?
1: Well, I think that's exactly right. Although in the case of, I mean, a lot of presidents, but especially President Trump, we need to not confuse the hype, what is said about what the president is going to do with what he actually does. And so a lot of times, I mean, this instant, recent incident with uh, going around Congress, since Congress is not able to come together on a, an extension of the, of the CARES Act, President Trump annou- made announcements as if he's going to solve the problem through executive orders. But when you read the executive orders themselves, they're going to do very little and that's, that's a political problem in that, you know, reality and hype are two different things. It's not exactly a legal problem. The real legal problem is the gradual uh, and sometimes precipitous accretion of powers by presidents that have taken, and that's taken place not just under President Trump and not even necessarily worse under President Trump, uh, President Obama Uh, was uh, a master at going around Congress through executive orders. And that's the long-term problem.
2: Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Professor Whaley and Professor McConnell for joining us today. It was a pleasure having both of you on the show.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been great. And um, if anyone's interested in following my work, I tweet at Kim Whaley, W-E-H-L-E, And I post a lot of my work on my website, which is just kimwhaley.com. But it's been a great pleasure to be here today. Thank you again for having me.
2: Thank you. And thank you, Professor McConnell.
1: Uh, Likewise. Uh, And if anyone's interested in following me, no, I do not tweet.
2: Well, we can follow you at at Stanford. And thank you very much for that. Well, for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us at Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.